After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest? Are you holding on to secrets, fears, or frustrations? We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. Don't keep it all bottled up inside. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeHereNow. Welcome to the CSM Podcast with David Nickturn. Creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. Blending spiritual and temporal realities, joining heaven and earth. We will be talking with a variety of manifestors, individuals who have, in one way or another, clarified their vision, created an offering, and brought that offering to the marketplace. Let's see what we can learn from them as we each move forward towards solving our own life puzzle. Facing the challenge of living in the spirit, in the body, in the world, in this time. If you're interested in supporting the CSM podcast, please visit eherenownetwork.com forward slash David. Today to the podcast, we're going to welcome Alberto Bioldo, who is the founder of the world-renowned Four Winds Society and the Light Body School. In his teachings and writings, he shares the experience of infinity and its ability to heal and transform us. Free us from the temporal chains, from the temporal chains that keep us fettered to illness, old age, and disease. Alberto is the author of numerous best-selling books, several which are available in many languages. Power Up Your Brain, The Neuroscience and Enlightenment with David Perlmutter. Shaman, Healer, Sage, The Four Insights, Mending the Past and Healing the Future with Soul Retrieval. Illumination, The Shaman's Way of Healing. Courageous Dreaming, How Shamans Dream the World into Being. Four Winds, The Shaman's Odyssey into the Amazon with Eric Jenderson, Dance of the Four Winds, etc., etc., etc. So many books. Uh, Alberto is also has become a friend of ours um, with his wife, Marcella, and we've taught together and studied with each other. Uh, I consider Alberto an important uh, teacher within the sort of multinational and Mahasanga, as I call it, the, the global community of people who are exploring the connection between uh, wisdom traditions and, and contemporary modalities. I would say Alberto is an absolute uh, thought leader in that area. So, Alberto, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you, David. Good to be with you. You know, in the conversations we've had over the years, I feel like we could go anywhere. So, um, it's interesting that you you just just going on the uh, first thought uh, best thought engine you were just mentioning that the the shamanic wisdom uh sustained the healing practices but maybe parts of the wisdom uh or more um you know intellectual part of the tradition is is lost so that that's how we started off today i wouldn't mind starting right there that's an interesting point you're making there yeah sure you know happy to go there what happened in the Americas is similar to what happened in Tibet. Uh, the Chinese went into Tibet a little bit more than 50 years ago, 
and destroyed temples and monasteries and persecuted and jailed and beat up and killed many of the of the monks and and spiritual teachers the teachings survived because they were in books and they were in the hands of living scholars but the same kind of conquest happened in the americas but 500 years ago and since there was no body of writing in the americas the wisdom teachings really began to disappear and what remained were the healing practices and the bone setters and the midwives and the herbalists because the conquistadors got sick and they had babies and they needed bone set but the wisdom teachings which were really in conflict with the christian teachings with the catholic teachings about the nature of infinity those were almost persecuted into extinction wow what a loss is there a way to re- is there a way to retrieve it and to re- re- reconnect Absolutely. with that somehow Absolutely. There is a way to retrieve these teachings because they're founded on a direct connection with wisdom and not a direct connection with the teacher. Mm. So the notion in the shamanic practices is that wisdom, Sophia, is the basic fabric of the universe. And it is your access, your connection to it, your openness to receive it, and kind of emptying your vessel so that you can uh, fill it with that, this underlying nature of the cosmos, which is based on the cosmos being cognizant, mm-hmm. being alive and aware, and not being a dead cosmos, which is what science tells us what we live in. Yeah, so um, why does science make that assumption? Science believes we live in a dead universe because it it, uh, thinks that the only living uh, beings are those that can grow or crawl or creep or eat each other. So it has a very narrow definition of life and of consciousness being coupled to the life forms that we're familiar with. But for the shaman, most of the interesting stuff that's going on is happening in the invisible world not the visible world, and consciousness permeates that invisible world without needing to have a vessel or a vehicle to carry it or a brain to carry it. So when, when we talk about a seer, is that somebody who can see the invisible world the way most people can see the visible world? The seers were the, were the shamans that were able to understand the nature of the invisible world, and were able to interact with it. Not only explain it, but interact with it. So in physics, for example, we know that 96% of the universe is invisible. It's what we call dark matter and dark energy. But we don't know how to interact with it. We can describe it because we see that light from distant galaxies bends around these invisible clusters of mass and energy. But that's, it's only indirectly that we can identify the presence of dark energy and dark matter. But the shaman is able to not only identify the invisible world, but interact with it because she has access to the field, to the quantum field that is the soup in which all of this um, expresses itself and from which all of this emerges. So, Alberto, what do you see when you look at a person? Literally, what do you see? Well, when I was a young man, I would see if she was married or single. (laughs) (laughs) And then as I grew a little bit older, I would see the carefully sculpted face that they presented to the world and, and understanding that there was a little bit more behind it. And um, and I see the same thing that everybody else sees until I shift to the shaman's way of seeing. And it's a way of perceiving, not of seeing through the eyes, but of multi-sensory perception that you find musicians have it. For example, they can see if 
they can see geese flying at a distance and they can imagine the flapping of the mm-hmm. wings. Of, uh, it's called synesthesia in, in, in psychology. So you can cross over senses. Scientists, many of them have this quality where they can use their imagination to t- perform thought experiments where they integrate reality into it without having to carry it out in a computer or in the real world. Einstein was renowned for his thought experiments. So um, synesthesia is an interesting phenomenon. I had a student once at a workshop, and she came up after the class and said she had acute synesthesia. But for her, it was it was challenging because she literally couldn't separate out her sense perceptions. Oh, yeah. You know that condition as a as medical condition? Yeah, yeah. That What happens is uh, it's here is a shamanic quality that is turned into a pathology in the West because we don't know how to deal with it. Mm. We don't know how to focus it, how to turn it on or off. So the I was being interviewed one time for Spanish television. And this was in the old days when you could be in an airline lounge and people were smoking in the lounges. And the television crew was there. We met at the American Airlines lounge, and they asked me that question, what do I see? And I said, well, when I enter into the shaman scene, I can hold my energy field even over someone, and they can see and perceive the same things that I perceive. And I did that with the interviewer. I held her in my field, and we looked at a woman who was sitting at the bar drinking a martini, with an empty glass already in front of her at 11 o'clock in the morning and chain-smoking cigarettes. And the woman says, wow, there's this white, filmy, milky substance above her. What is that? And I said, that is her energy body. It knows that she's close to dying, mm-hmm. and it's already beginning to depart, to test the departure, the exit strategy. And the woman asked me, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to go to the front desk to find out what flight she's on to make sure I'm not in the same flight. <laughs> so, so, you, so you don't intervene or interfere <laughs> with what you perceive. Uh-huh. Um, and that's really a, requires a curtailing of a, of, an, of a response system that we have, that we see something and we want to fix it. Yeah, And for the shaman to awaken her ability to see, she has to be willing to witness without needing to do. Is there any sense, though, of auspiciousness when you do see somebody or something and they come into your purview, that there's some uh, basis for a karmic connection there to, to, to explore it? Or would you just absolutely just go, no, even if I'm bumping into this person, yeah, I, 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 don't yeah. me- I don't meddle with it? Yeah, the uh, we, we even especially when you when you exercise shamanic seeing and you perceive a karmic connection, a past life connection, or somebody who reminds you of one of your own stories in this life, mm. then at that point you want to truly practice witnessing and not engaging, because we will engage emotionally. Mm-hmm. That person that you fall in love with, that you feel really gets you and sees you for who you are and and um, and you feel like you've known each other forever. Well, you have because you killed her or him <laughs> or tortured him 2,000 years ago and you gazed into each other's eyes deeply as you were, you were bleeding to death. So at that point, you, don't, you want to make sure you don't end up marrying this person in this life or working for them. So you really need to witness, find out what the story is about and try to change to heal the story within you and not with them again, because that is just going to create more karma. So it sounds like a very lonely, uh, you know, Chunkarimita used to talk about aloneness as a sort of fundamental quality of, um, of really digging deep into practice. And uh, even some poems about that. Is, is, it, is it lonely? To be a shaman? It's, a, it's terribly lonely. Mm. And beautifully lonely. Mm. But then you're 
making sure that you don't spend time with the people that you share your closest beliefs with, but you get to spend time with people that don't agree with you. Because we end up seeking the company of others that are convinced of the same worldview that we have, that are all living in the same cultural trance bubble, but we don't get to learn about ourselves. So we don't try to kill the loneliness with the circle of friends that revolves around um, basically dulling your experience of reality. So the, the shaman likes to keep the edge um, of the experience, the sharpness of the experience. Yeah, you want to keep an edge and you want to at the same time be of service in the world. The shaman's path is one of being of service. And I know that the Buddhist path is very focused on that also, alleviating suffering. We're kind of more focused on trying to alleviate stupidity or ignorance. <laughs> it doesn't seem that alleviatable these days. <laughs> You've yeah, got a big rampant. job ahead of you. <laughs> it's totally rampant. But when yeah. you do, when you are in service and it's not motivated by your deep need to fix something that you perceive is wrong, but simply being in service... So you're not trying to heal yourself through your lover or through your job or through your calling or through what you feel you need to do for the world. Then at that point, you are living in right relationship that in the Andes is called Aini. Aini. And that mm. provides you with greater, great abundance in your life. Mm. Great word. What language is that? Aini is a Quechua word. Oh, Quechua. Aini. Oh. There are such great words in different traditions. Like in, in Japan, they have certain words for honor, honor, you know, for a certain way of certain qualities of integrity. Um, you know, words that describe emptiness, you know. And sometimes they can't be translated. So if you translated Aini, what would be the closest thing in English to Aini? You know, I need, it's, it's one of these beautiful words that doesn't exist in the English language because the language reflects your values. So I need means today for you, tomorrow for me. It means Oh, that how beautiful that is. That, that translates pretty well. Yeah, yeah. It's very poetic. It means that for the shaman, there's no difference between being killed by a microbe or being killed by a jaguar. You've got to be an I need with... The microbes and the jaguars, so they're both going to be looking at you as lunch. Whereas for us, the microbe, being killed by a microbe is an illness, and being killed by a jaguar is an accident. But for the shaman, they're a reflection of the quality of your relationship with nature. So that you don't have to kill the bacteria or the parasite or the microbe before it kills you. You've got to come into right relationship with it, and then it will not kill you. The same with the jaguar. Well, how, Umberto, how would that relate to, like, vaccines? Would a shaman not take a vaccine at that point? Well, you know, the, 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 the vaccine is designed to create antibodies that will protect you against this enemy that, are, that we consider the virus to be an enemy. But if you look at the history of evolution, evolution has been is, is catalyzed by viruses. So that it's, they're the accelerator. They're like throwing gasoline into the fire of evolution. Mm. And it has the effect of culling out the species, of culling the members of the species that are least fit to survive. So what the shaman would do instead of trying to kill the virus, and you cannot kill the virus because it's not alive. It's not, it's, it's from the definition of biology, it's really not living. You cannot kill something that's not living. So to create immunity to this critter, basically you want to become resilient. You want to strengthen the immune system. You want to become healthy. You want to become strong and fit. And be sure you're not creating a lot of psychosomatic uh, stress and disorder in your life. And then your experience of 
the virus will be much milder. It will not be killing you. It will actually be helping you to become stronger. And this is the conversation that Louis Pasteur was having with Hahnemann 150 years ago. Hahnemann discovered homeopathy, and Pasteur discovered pasteurization, where you boil your water or your milk to kill the bacteria. And Pasteur was saying, hey, it's the, it's the bugs. And Hanuman was saying, no, it's the terrain. It's the terrain, it's the body. It's the soil. And Pasteur was saying, no, 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 it's the bacteria. We need to develop fertilizers and pesticides and, and, um, and glyphosate that will kill the bacteria. And that was the direction that medicine took. And if you look at medicine, it's amazing how many things are anti, antibiotics, antihistamine, and antivirals, <laughs> and ant. And today we're discovering that indeed it is the soil, the quality of the soil that keeps the parasites away from plants. And we find that it's the quality of the body, of the terrain in the body, that makes you resilient. And that's the approach that a shaman would take. So the shaman would not take the vaccine? Well, the shaman would take a vaccine as well. Ah, okay. But it wouldn't rely on the vaccine to offer you the kind of protection we're hoping that it will do. Yeah. Understood. So you, you're, you're saying that the shaman would build up their own immunity across a, a multiple uh, modalities of strengthening the immune, immune system. Yeah, the key here is resilience. Yeah. You don't want to develop a very strong immune response because it turns out that this is what's killing people in this pandemic. It's not the virus. It's the immune system going out of whack, creating a cytokine storm that begins to destroy tissue organs and create these, these long haulers, these individuals that cannot recover from. So you need to go back to the terrain. You need to come into right relationship with the earth because for the shaman, there's only one illness. And that is disconnection from nature and from your own nature. Mm. And only one medication, which is the reconnection, the reconnecting with your own nature and with mother nature around us. That seems like a long road to hoe for the contemporary world that we're living in. Is it possible? You know, there, there, it is essential that we come into a relationship of stewardship with nature as earth keepers, that we become earth keepers in effect. You know, this is founded in our mythology. We have the only mythology in the planet in which we were cast out of the garden. Yes. We were kicked out of the garden, and this voice comes and says to the woman, it says, cursed is the earth because of you, woman, and in pain you shall, wear, you shall bear children as punishment. And to the man, the voice says, and you, because you listen to this woman, you will take your fruit from the earth with the sweat of your back, and it will bear... Um, how does it go? It will grow um, thorns and um, and bitter herbs, so that you will you're dealing with the thorns. The voice didn't say the earth will will provide mangoes and papayas and strawberries for you. He says no, it will bear thorns and thistles. Mm. So we have right in page one of our mythology that we come up with a hostile relationship with the feminine, with the earth and with woman. And this is what brings us to a mythology that is predatory, where we look at the earth as, as if we were deserving, we're the only creatures that own all of the food in the earth is to feed us. And not stewards of the earth, but to be able to use the earth and the creatures to our liking. And that's what's gotten us into the huge trouble we're in today. 
Alberta, I just had the feeling I'm speaking to the past and I'm speaking to the future at the same time. You know, there is one version of the future in which people come back around to some kind of um, appreciation of the principles that you're describing. And there's no doubt at times in the past that people have connected. But the situation now, now seems so dire, doesn't it? Yeah, there is a way... And it's not regressive. It's not by, let's go back to the good old days when we rode horses. No, it includes technology. It includes shifting the socioeconomic system so that the, the few are not living at the expense of the many. It includes a redistribution of wealth in the planet. Uh, it includes economics that, are, um, that look at the top line and not the bottom line only. Thought leaders, you know, and the leaders of the pack, you know, are are not really in sync as far as one can tell. So that that's something I, I um, partly was trained to by the tradition I come from, and particularly Trungpa Rinpoche, um, the idea of integrating secular and sacred um, at a at a whole new level, uh, because there there has been. And tell me what you think about this over thousands of years, people who've been seers and who've had been able to talk the way you're talking have traditionally withdrawn from the world, the active uh, and, and active leadership in the world. And the whole notion of Shambhala, uh, which is part of a, a kind of a set of, re, in a sense, revealed, they're called Terma teachings. They, they, they're exactly what you said. They come out of the wisdom uh, uh, experience itself. So there's a direct a direct connection to that rather than just hearing it from another living person. That central idea is the integration of the sacred and the secular so that the image, you know, the kind of um, iconography of it is the Rigdons who are actually temporal leaders, but they're enlightened beings. You know, they're, they're seers, they're guides, but they also take the mantle. Uh, of temporal leadership, you know, running governments, running businesses and things like that. Is there any parallel there that you could see? You know, the shamanic traditions are really having a resurgence today. There's a rebirth happening in the world of the ancient shamanic traditions because they're feminine, they're earth-based, and they provide a leadership that includes not only humanity, but nature and all creatures, all beings. So, yes, there is a new leadership that's emerging on the planet that is going to be integrating the secular and the sacred. And that says that the secular has to be in service to the sacred because the sacred doesn't happen inside the temple. It happens in the fields. It happens in the workplace. It happens when a mother's delivering a child. It happens in the schools. So when you have the sacred becoming institutionalized and happening underneath a roof and f inside four walls, it's divorced from the world. So that's the, that's to me the, the pathway that we have towards sanity at this point is to reinfuse the world with the sacred because it never left it. Could you imagine running for mayor of Santiago? I am the mayor <laughs> of, my, of my local village. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the local villagers here yeah. where we live, yeah. the, uh, they come to us for advice mm. because we have sustainable agriculture. Mm -hmm. we, do a, we know a little bit of family therapy and we have... So these, these, these spiritual leaders that offer wisdom can work together with the political leadership and reunite these two. Yeah. But it's a long shot. I don't know. I don't see that happening very quickly in America today. Oh, it's, uh, I'm sure you're following, uh, for, for those who don't know, um, Alberto lives in Chile where he has a, a center called Four Winds, which um, I guess um, when the time is right, everybody can visit. But meanwhile, there's ways to access Four Winds online, um, the Four Winds Society. Is that it, the fourwindssociety.com? 
Yeah, the4wins.com. Oh, just the4wins.com. Yeah, yeah. the4wins.com. And we operate in the U.S. I live in the U.S. half of the year, and then half of the year in South America, because this is where the traditions, the shamanic traditions are. And we live under the protection of a holy mountain down here, mm. which is the highest mountain in the Americas. It's the Aconcagua, higher than anything in North or South. It's, this is the great repository of the wisdom that in our tradition congregates at the high mountaintop because it's a mountain tradition. It's not a jungle tradition. That's very different. This is a high mountain tradition that requires pilgrimage and testing and mm-hmm. and meditating and in cave retreats above the snow line and being tested in nature. Mm. We, um, you know, in really from the Bunpo tradition, but also um, Tibetan Buddhism, the notion of La, Nian, and Lu. Have you ever heard of, about that? La, Nian, no, and Lu? No, so no, these, are, these are the conversations when, which, when we are able to gather, you know, with, um, with, with, um, in, in real time and real space. Um, there are so many interesting um, uh, sort of framing devices or how to experience certain aspects of what we're talking about that are coming from the Shambhala Terma tradition of, of Trungpa Rinpoche. But one of them, and these are just woven into the fabric of traditional uh, Tibetan uh, Vajrayana Buddhism also, is this idea of La, the, the, the kind of three domains of existence. And the La is what you're describing now. It's like the peak of the mountain in the human being. It's mm-hmm. the forehead and the, the sky. Uh, so it's closely associated with vision, uh, with kind of clear seeing, with unobstructed imagination and so forth. And it's um, kind of the, the most, um, I guess you would say, sublime or, or um, un, un, unfabricated, just like, you know, self-sourcing. And then when it starts to come down, it's called the nian is the next principle, which is the shoulders and the torso and the body. And in a, like in a, in a government structure, it would be the ministers. Would be the uh, in a in a corporate structure, would be the uh, you know the different high level uh, operatives. And the Nian's role is to transmit down from the law to beginning the descent to the earth earth level, the sort of practical level. And then the Lu is the domain of the um, the Nagas, for example, are Lu, Lu beings. Um, the the lower body, the pelvis, the watery, means literally watery domain. And mm-hmm. the idea is integrating those three uh, because they're in constant communication. Um, so the retreat up the high mountain peak would be sort of resetting the law, your connection with the heaven. That's another word for it is heaven, joining heaven and earth. So I find this is extremely, as far as I know, as far as I can tell, there are so many parallels like that of joining heaven and earth, um, connecting those principles but the when the law and the lube become dissociative, which is, means you have bad leadership, there's nothing in between connecting them. So people have tremendous imaginations and vision and stuff, but they can't bring it down. They can't, they can't realize it. Uh, then you have chaos and disharmony. Uh, so, and one of the things that they say is knowing the placement of objects even, like... Um, like that flower arrangement you're sitting with has a sort of, it has a, a law quality to it. And that principle is keeping the space lighter, more fresh, uh, more clear-minded, you know, unobstructed by concepts. And is there anything like that, those three domains in, in the shaman tradition? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We have a three-world theory um, or structure in the shamanic teachings where you have the lower world, which is the um, the world's beneath the earth. It's where seeds germinate. Mm. It's where the ancient wisdom resides. So it's a relationship with time as well. Then we have the middle world. The lower world is associated with the lower regions in the body. It's water by nature and earth. And then we have the middle world, which is this area, this region here, which is where we interact in our day-to-day life. And then there's the upper world, which is the world of our becoming, and which is the head and the more sublime regions of our 
future existence of our who we're becoming 10,000 years from now. Mm. And now the, the, at this time, the shamans believe that the worlds have collapsed into each other. Mm. So that the gates of hell have been flung open and all of these demons of the history of humanity and the monsters and the beauty and the wisdom of the ancient wisdom teachings as well, all of it, the wisdom libraries of old, they're all accessible to us today. But the gates of heaven have also been flung open. Mm. So we have this immediate con contact with very sublime beings and with teachers and even with who humanity is becoming 10,000 years from today so that we can throw a grappling hook into the future and allow that to pull us towards a really desirable destiny in a way that was very difficult to do before because we're not living in a time of crisis. Crisis catalyzes all these processes. So crisis has a positive uh, dimension to it. Like you said, you know, the virus is accelerating evolution, just kind of very um, interesting way of looking at it. And it explains to me why certain people right now inexplicably are really thriving creatively. Uh, even despite the level of stress and anxiety about, especially here in the U.S., about what's going to happen next, what kind of lunatic fringe is going to do what yeah. next. I know so many people who are just having a kind of real uptick in their um, practice, their exploration, their curiosity, even their health. Yeah, yeah. It's an extraordinary time if you are able to adapt to it. Mm. And the, this is this is the challenge today, of course. Now, it's interesting because our DNA, um, biologists say that only 4 to 6% of your DNA is coding. Only that small percentage codes for the proteins that make up who you are as a human. And the other 95%, they call junk DNA. And we know that it's not junk, but it's actually a history of all of our encounters with viruses. Oh. There are viral snippets of our successful encounter with smallpox and the Black Plague and all of those things that we have acquired immunity for in the, in the millions of years of our evolution, but that have been catalytic. So this is the way that, that nature has of influencing the traits and the qualities that get expressed. But what's interesting also is that there are 40 million species in the planet. And out of those 40 million, there are only three species that don't have death programmed into their DNA. And these are humans, whales, and dolphins, orcas. They, everything else in nature, every other species of those 40 million, the minute that the female is no longer reproductively viable, Mother Nature eliminates her. There are no grandmothers in nature. There, there's no menopause, except among humans, grand, human grandmothers were the keepers of wisdom. The orca grandmothers teach the young how to hunt, how to speak, how to communicate. These are the three species that have the biggest brain-to-body weight ratio, so that are that don't have death program into their DNA. It's, pro it's programmed at the cellular level. So when you have a skin cell, for example, that needs to die, skin cells die every five or six days. Then you have a system mechanism called apoptosis that will get rid of that skin cell so the new cell can replace it. At the cellular level, it's still operant, but not at the systemic level. So we are programmed really for immortality in a way, or for very, very long lives. But it's only these three species. And it blew me away when I read this article a couple of years ago, because these are the three species that shamans say share the fourth world, that our souls come from the same place. They source from this fourth world, only these three species that are now beginning to source from the fifth world. As we take this evolutionary quantum leap, catalyzed again by climate change and extinction events and viruses, those of us that choose to take that leap 
will begin to source from the fifth world. But that leap can only be taken spiritually. You cannot tinker with the biology. The spirituality will then inform the field. The consciousness reorganizes the energy field that then reorganizes the body. And voila, out comes the new human. That's homo luminous. Alberto, you have a very unique perspective, at least uh, as, uh, from, from my point of view. And I just had the strange thought while you're talking, is there anybody on this planet who reminds you of yourself? The, uh, everybody in this planet reminds me, <laughs> especially you, David. <laughs> you know, I, I have I have friends that are that are trying to that are working on how they want to be remembered. Mm. And now I, I also have some friends that are working on how they want to be forgotten. To, <laughs> I was going to say how, that next. How they want to be they want to become nobody. Yeah, and but nobody is still somebody. Mm. So I think today we have to become everybody. Mm. We have to lose this kind of cult of individualism that we have yeah. in the West to put we instead ahead of me. Yeah. Well, of course, we have a very close mutual friend who actually is partly responsible for us even knowing each other, which is Stefan Rechtschaffen, who who is the founder of Omega. Institute and Blue Spirit. And I think um, he's one of my other friends who's on, on a similar wavelength I think, with you, which is sort of thinking very, very much at a level of uh, how things connect beyond the obvious level and the totality of the situation. So I imagine you and he would have conversations. Is that is that the case? Yeah, yeah. This is the exactly the same conversations that we have together. Yeah, yeah it's funny. And, um, you know, the me to we thing is something he talks about quite, quite a lot. And I just, I just, uh, as a, as a composer, I just shamelessly borrow stuff, you know, so I put that we're doing, um, the next uh, workshop we're doing with uh, Dharma Moon is, um, uh, on our, our Tuesday night Dharma gathering is going to be on the Paramitas after we finish this Mahayana section that you and Marcel are mm -hmm. joining us for. So the paramitas are the six transcendent virtues that take you from me to we, basically. That's exactly what they do. That's the, the paramita means crossing the bridge from me to we. And it mm, can't be theoretical beautiful. and it can't be, it can't be uh, idiot compassion and it can't be kind of um, codependency. It's, it's this very uh, uh, particular passageway where there's actual recognition of, of the interdependence. You see it. You have to be able to see it. You can't just talk about it or imagine it and the first one's generosity that's that's the first paramita just opening mm -hmm. the chest a little bit more letting it out a little bit more and um you know the me to we thing is that seems to be almost a if if you want to reduce what we're talking to down to a very small uh paradigm it seems to have a lot to do with recognizing the we and people stop being so damn selfish, you know, all the time. And, uh, and so paranoid and so fearful about the preservation of that. But that's a big leap. For, that's, that's a giant leap, isn't it, for most people? It's a gigantic leap for the Westerner. Mm. The, the transition from me, from I, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? We've become so invested in the, the payoff. Mm. of this relationship, this conversation, this friendship, this lover, this business deal, that uh, we forget that, that, that it's really a collaborative dance. You know, Darwin introduced the notion that evolution happened as the survival of the fittest, the strongest, an army of one, that you could be so strong and so fast and so muscular and so, man so much teeth that you were unassailable and you could get what you wanted. And today we're discovering that evolution is not about the fittest, but it's the survival of the wisest, mm. not the strongest. And that evolution is collaborative, that it depends on systems and communities and individuals collaborating with each other, with nature, for the well-being of all. And this requires a shift at many, many levels, which have to begin 
with our mythology. We need a new mythology. Oh, no. Our mythologies are coming from the time when the Earth was still flat, when there was no Hubble Space Telescope, when we lived in a universe. Today we live in a multiverse, and we need a new myth that can guide us forward. What an amazing idea to, you know, in, in the title, we have creativity, spirituality, and livelihood. But I think you just cross over into the creativity area there. Who, who could create... Who could create such a myth? That would be such an amazing... People do it periodically. Are you, are you a writer? Because it's something that you could do? You know, these myths, myths emerge at critical times in history. Mm. Mm. So the myths, if you look at the myths of uh, the great Greek myths and the myths before that, uh, they are happening at junctures. And we are one right now. So the myths that survive reflect the qualities of the survivors. And today to survive, we need generosity, we need collaboration, we need stewardship with nature, and, um, and we need to become, go through the great transformation process, which is really a transfiguration. You know, that little caterpillar that wraps itself up in a cocoon it's just following an instinct to transform, but then it gets, it begins to get really confining. It gets really, really tight, and it feels like something's chest is going to burst open and, and burst open, and there's a butterfly. Yeah. But if you try to tell a caterpillar that's chewing on a leaf that in a few days it's going to fly, it's going to have wings, it's going to be luminous. It's going to be an amazing creature of many colors. It's going to laugh at you. Now, the ones that laugh at you, that don't believe you, you know, remember that only 10% of caterpillars become butterflies. The other 90% become moths that will be eating your sweaters <laughs> and not sucking at the flowers. <laughs> and this is the that great step that we're invited to take. But this idea of myth, myth, Alberto, the myth, I'm still stuck there. You left me there. Because <laughs> this is what artists do, you know. Um, and, and, for example, you told the story of that caterpillar as, as a narrative, as a movie. As, and, and you didn't uh, give the didactic version of what's happening. You gave just the poetic version of it. And then so many people can plug into that. You're exactly right. There's... There, now, it's like there's also, you know, kind of esoteric mythology and then there's populist mythology. Like I was thinking of Star Wars. That is a contemporary myth. It has technology in it, has warrior principles in it. It has the notion of unseen forces in it. But every kid on the street knows about it, you know. Is there, is there um, any part of you that is, is a creator in that way of just um, of actually just letting your your fancy ride out into the form of writing something that is poetic and mythological uh, in the way that you're describing? You know, if you look at the, the original authors of Superman, uh -huh. of the myth of Superman, are you familiar yeah. with the? Yeah. This is uh, Superman is the superhero that came from, I forget the name of the planet he came from. Krypton. Krypton, that's right. And uh, his mother and father were Jor-El. And, well, this was developed by a Jewish artist at the time when, when Jews were being persecuted everywhere, right oh. prior to the mm -hmm. war. Mm -hmm. The culture was being decimated, and it needed a superhero. Right. And this is the... Um, so this is the myth of the superhero that was developed to express itself as Superman, first right. of all, right. uh, this modest character that was timid, that could transform. This has infused every one of our psychologies, personal development, personal growth, bring out the best in you, bring out your superhuman qualities. And this myth has actually exhausted itself today. You don't want to become a superhuman. How about becoming human? Yeah. <laughs> You, you, we want to end this. There's a new myth that is emerging that is, um, that is happening right now. And you can feel the pulsation. You can feel the throbbing of this new myth that is ready to emerge. And we hope 
And we'll see if it's successful because you measure the effectiveness of a myth by how it provides a survival and a thriving paradigm for a society or for a subgroup within a society. It, it's, it's like a leap into, you know, when, when um, in the Buddhist tradition, when certain practitioners like Milarepa, for example, a very famous yogi in Tibetan history, at a certain point, he didn't even speak linearly the way we're speaking now. It was all um, um, what's called Doha, Songs of Realization. So there's a book called 100,000 Songs of Milarepa. And he was, I mean, he was sitting there practically naked in the Tibetan winter because he had the Tumo practice, the inner heat practice. His mind was as vast as the sky. You know, he was completely enlightened. Being he, they said he could uh, fly from one place to another. You know, um, this is a real historical figure. This is not a myth, actually. But then, when people would ask him for teachings, he would just sing. He didn't speak anymore. He would sing, uh, and it was a song of realization. So he would just sort of describe in a poetic. He's like the original kind of cosmic songwriter. Uh, and and this process of. Um, in my little community, Dharma Moon, I'm trying to connect the creatives with the thread of this kind of spiritual um, narrative and practice, and also with the actually ability to be sustainable. But the creative energy is such an interesting force, and um, I wondered who could write who could who could write this myth you're talking about. I'm, I'm kind of going to not let you. I'm going to bug you about this. <laughs> well, that's in my next book, actually. That's coming out. <laughs> Next May, next May. Okay, Sorry. you went there. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, totally. totally. Yeah, yeah. That's why they call me Nudgy Alberto. You know, <laughs> I never let it go. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I used to have a dog like that too. So. <laughs> <laughs> Once his tongue gets deep into you, there was no escaping. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can't help it actually. But so, um, so it's in. There's some element of this in the in the book that you just finished writing, right? You just um, finished last week. Yeah, or this is the you know the the shamanic wisdom is encapsulated in a fourfold path known as the medicine wheel, mm. and the medicine wheel is actually the four steps to becoming a man or a woman of of power and of knowledge, and it's a healing map. But after you go through the first round to the medicine wheel, you find that it's really a spiral. Mm. And that the, the next one up is a wisdom wheel. Mm. And then you're, you've already done your healing. It's not about healing me, but healing us. It's about bringing healing and beauty to the community, to the world. And then it's about the mystery teaching. It's not mm. about discovering who you are, but discovering... The great mystery, by, it's about becoming nobody so you can become everybody. It's about looking at yourself in the mirror and say, I don't know who you are this morning, but I'll, I'll brush your teeth anyway. <laughs> you, become the, you become the mystery. You don't study the mystery anymore. Yeah. And this is the, um, in the West, for example, if you wake up one morning not knowing who you are, you need to go into therapy to find sure. out who you are. Sure. If you this happens in the Himalayas in a Tibetan community that's Buddhist, you go, ah, oh, congratulations, you <laughs> have attained. <laughs> well, and then um, people begin to, uh, from a conventional point of view, behave sometimes in very unorthodox ways, um, you know. And um, what I what I feel like is the creativity then becomes an almost uh, a language. In fact, you know, uh, it is a it is a higher form of language. Just uh, express yourself without even knowing why or where or who's it going to, where's it coming from. And I'm just particularly interested in that process, obviously, because it's part of my own process of music and so forth. Um, is is there um, any any aspect of of your tradition in which you're just creating just for the pure joy of it are you doing cooking are you doing flower arranging are you painting are you do you play an instrument is there any part of you that's just that that kind of whimsical part i don't know that part of you yeah there is i think that the creativity is the playful part mm. 
And that's this, the innocent part. Mm. It, it must be innocent. Even in the deepest pain and suffering, mm. it has an authenticity and a rawness that, um, that, that is true. It has a sense of it being truthful and true. And uh, I like to take that approach when I'm writing, particularly. Mm. I, so that I purposely will... Um, my, my sentences tend to be long. Mm-hmm. Because I don't, I don't want people to grab onto a thought too quickly. But even in the same sentence, I might offer a contradictory perspective that startles you and you go, ah, but it has to be in a way that's not insulting or offensive or assaulting. Mm. But have you looked at this side? Ah. And the, so for me, I do it through writing. Um, mm. My wife, for example, she's a writer also and a shaman. She does it through gardening. She's an amazing, she doesn't plant little gardens. She's planted a forest here in our retreat center. You know, we have a shamanic monastery that we, that we live in half of the year in Chile. Um, and so she's created the original forest that was here before it was, just before it was logged and cut down for farming. So that, um, so this is creativity. I, I am convinced that if the minute you stop creating, you get sick. Mm. And to get healthy, you need to become a creator, a co-creator in some way. And if you look at the Aborigines in Australia, for example, they have creation and creating, but not create poor. Mm. So that it's not focused on appeasing or praying to or asking favors of a creator, but in, but on creating and admiring creation. Whereas our mythologies, our religious mythologies are focused on a creator that just happened to separate itself from the creation, by the way. Right. <laughs> so that spirit is not in matter. Matter is, we know matter is not spiritual. This is, um, but matter, the word matter comes from the word mater, mother, the feminine is not spiritual. So we need a radical revision of our mythology, and that generally happens when you're confronted with possible extinction. So I am so excited and thrilled about the times that we're living in because that's exactly where we are. Personal extinction and collective extinction of humanity. Right. Hallelujah. Bring it on. Let's take a quantum leap. Let's have the new human emerge. Mm. You know, when, when the Israelites came to the Red Sea, they, the legends say that the Red Sea did not part until they were up to their noses in the water. It's not like they got there and the Red Sea was already parted, you know, and they didn't uh, put yeah, their feet yeah, in the water yeah, yeah. to see how cold the water was. Was there going to be somebody waiting on the other side with a towel? Well, well, well that's a perfect example of a myth that it actually illuminates a, a dharmic principle that you have to engage, you have to get into it before you're going to get out of it. And, uh, you know, that's exactly the kind of story that it seems that those, those really can shift people's perceptions. And we are with the theistic mythology in the West. Uh, it's really dominant right now that the, um, um, you know, the notion of the creator being separate from the creation. And then we somehow, our job is to, um, what we're told basically on some level it creates that kind of almost animal realm mentality of just um surrender but not not because there's a sense of connection just you feel like otherwise you you're gonna be punished god it's horrible no i mean there must be uh a shift that's one of the things that um you know that uh was really tuned into about the theistic foundation of the western culture and um the other in in the buddhism you have the theism and you have the nihilism as the two extreme beliefs that are both uh, counterindicated by any kind of real um real perception of how things are op- operating so you either negate or you in, you confirm and you, um it's they de- they ferment off of each other 
So this kind of middle way that you're, that you're really implying there is just to sort of stay with the process. There's, there seems to be a little tinge of hopefulness. It's interesting in your view. Um, it seems like there's a positive future there. Is that right? You know, the, the task of the shaman is to not need a positive outcome to be able to dedicate all of your resources and energy to do what you feel is, uh, is your calling. Mm. So I try not to have a lot of hope. <laughs> but I am hopeful. Yeah, okay. But I try not to, not to <laughs> depend on that for the... Um, the fuel. Yeah, that's not the fuel. That's not what uh, keeps me going. A better life, a better, yeah. you know, even a better incarnation. That doesn't keep me going. Mm -hmm. uh, th this is a problem that I have with the Buddhist notion of the Buddha fields. It sounds too much like heaven, you know. And the shamans say, hey, we live in a Buddha field. Look, this earth was created by a Buddha or, the, you know, by a great shaman. Yeah. This blue-green planet in the middle of this space that is just barren rock. And yeah. no life is created by consciousness and is protected by consciousness. And we're part of that system. It's not that we need to connect with nature. We're, we are interdependent. We're, we're, we're a cell in that system. So this is the, um, the beauty of having that we're already here. Well, in Vajrayana Buddhism, that is totally the perspective it's uh, the proclamation of exactly what you just said. This is it. Yeah. This is actually it. You don't get um, an alternate reality to peel off that um, somehow is more idealistic or something. So it's all leading that way. Um, you know, undoing some of the conceptual apparatus, um, you know, takes some serious peeling away. But the, the ultimate point of view is clearly that this is... Um, a fruitional experience already. This is it. Yeah. So you, you, you know, there's, um, and that's, I think, so Buddhism from that perspective is sometimes taken to be nihilistic in, in the framework that we just said. It's negating, it's cutting away, it's saying it's not this, it's not that. But it's useful. Um, and when we, you know, in our class that we're doing right now, which you're um, joining in on, the notion of bliss and emptiness being the couple, Bliss and yeah. emptiness, you know, because if you don't understand the emptiness part, uh, then your bliss becomes, as you said, a God realm, you know, Devaloka. And if you don't understand the bliss part, your emptiness becomes nihilistic. You know, I love the class that we're doing with you. I'm learning so much. As I was mm. mentioning to you, because the shamanic tradition has left no body of writing. Mm. And um, last night I had a dream. We're, we're big into dreaming. The dream yoga is really important in mm. the shamanic practice. So I had a dream last night where I was in the holy mountain and I was saying to the mountain, I hope I have not butchered this shamanic teaching too badly. Please forgive me. And, um, and then the mountain kind of sp spoke to me. I heard, I felt these words and it was saying, no, you did not. And you were, you were not true to the old, but you were not false either to it. So... It was saying to me that it was not the same, but not different. Mm -hmm. I go, ah, thank you so much. Yeah, <laughs> didn't didn't give you an out on either side, right? Yeah, because no, no exit at, ramp. Yeah, when you look at uh, you look at the Kabbalists, for example, the Kabbalist, the whole body of wisdom of the mystical traditions of Judaism come from a book written by Abraham that's fourteen pages long. 14 pages. And then a group of scholars wrote the Sohar, which is 20 volumes, 10,000 pages. And then every other rabbi has written a commentary on it. Mm. It's kind of the same in a way with Buddhism, because the Buddha left a you know, very small canon. And, and then all of these different schools and interpretations and sure. and teachers and masters, they come with a rearticulation that is not the same and not different mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. in the moment. And it's, uh, so yeah, that's, I'm very much enjoying being a student of yours, David. It's mm. truly a pleasure, pleasure. Well, and I feel the same way, Alberto. I have, I have more, uh, 
time to come to really, I, I really want to understand more deeply the, we've shared and we've gone back and forth and I, I've taken courses with you and Marcella that have been, you know, really highlights and I feel like just scratched the surface of it, but the commonalities are really intriguing to me, particularly with the, with the more shamanic elements of the, of the Shambhala teaching. And I just hope we can keep having this conversation for a long time. Absolutely. Uh, this so, will be a running dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I very much appreciate you joining for our podcast. There's, uh, it's definitely enriching. And I'm also going to just recommend to folks that who are interested, and I meet a lot of people who are interested in studying shamanism, that you go to um, thefourwinds.com. Uh, Alberto's one of the few that I know, anyhow, very authentic bridges between the, um, well, let's say the past and the future. But in terms of being really learned in contemporary, um, you know, not just spouting stuff about um, DNA and things like that. He really knows about it. He's, 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 he's got the bridge between the contemporary uh, perspective and the traditional perspective. And he studied with the authentic holders of the, of, the, um, of the tradition. There just aren't that many people like that around. So I'm just going to recommend to everybody who's, you know, interested in, in um, learning more about it, just go and um, take one of the courses um, some of our students, by the way, Alberto, are going to take some of your courses. I feel like there's a great flow through there. And that makes Beautiful. me happy. That, that makes me really happy. So give Marcel a hug for us, will you? I will. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. Pleasure to be with you. Blessings. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest? Are you holding on to secrets, fears, or frustrations? We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. Don't keep it all bottled up inside. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.